it's more to a life who can have access to the world and its maker. This is Regeneration. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for the day. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gospel. Uh, and I pray this morning that we would see every single thing uh, that you want us to see uh, in your text in, in Romans 5, and that we would apply it exactly the way you want us to apply it. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I've had the opportunity uh, to think quite a bit this week about the difference one life can make. And uh, that's where I want to start, and that's kind of what this sermon is about. And I thought about when I, when I look back on my life, uh, some of the difference makers in my life. You probably feel the same way about some of the difference makers in, in yours. I thought about Miss Akers. Uh, Miss Akers was my middle school teacher, uh, and I had gotten up on uh, one afternoon and, and given a speech to my class, and she just made a very simple comment to me. She said, I think you might have a future in public speaking. And you have to understand, I was this painfully shy, uh, squirrely, kind of nerdy kid, and having a teacher kind of speak affirmation into me uh, meant the world to me. I, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. She wouldn't know my name. If you found her today and uh, mentioned me to her, she would not remember me, but I remember her, and I remember the difference that she made. I think about Pam, my Sunday school teacher growing up, uh, I grew up in, in kind of a, a little bit of a dysfunctional church. I've told you about it at different times. But Pam, her faithfulness to be there every week, teaching these rowdy kids the Bible, it, it made a difference. And a lot of my love of the Bible comes from growing up in that church and being surrounded by people who love the Bible and who showed up every day to teach it with passion. And Pam and people like that, they just made a difference. Uh, I think about Larry, one of the professors I had in Bible college, and you just have to understand the backstory a little bit that when I went to Bible college, I was totally beat up and broken. I was going through tragedy. My family was separated and I'm not getting along. I was questioning whether or not God had even called me into the ministry. And Larry, it was Larry who took me under his wing, mentored me, helped me, gave me an internship at his church. And I'm in ministry uh, first because of the call of God, but secondarily, I am in ministry because of his influence and uh, the, the way that he encouraged me during that difficult season. One person can make a tremendous difference. Uh, and and th that is just true. And this is what the Apostle Paul wants us to see in Romans 5. Spiritually, we're going to talk about two different men and two, different, two uh, different differences that they made. And I have to tell you, kind of when I got in, uh, when I start studying uh, for our, our sermon time together, I do just a real uh, basic read-through of the text and just see what kind of initially comes to me. And I read through this text and I was like, uh-oh. Uh, I'm not sure. And I started, then I go to commentaries and I start looking at commentaries. And the very first line of the very first commentary I read said, there is no more complex passage of scripture in all of the Bible than Romans 5. All right? That, that we're going to study together. Uh, and so hopefully this isn't going to feel like a boring class. I'm going to be a little bit more tied to my notes, I think, than I normally am. Um, but we just want to walk through this text. We want to enjoy it together, and we want to learn from it. Here's what verse 12 says. Therefore, just as sin entered through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even after those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, praise God. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5. So our story today, it starts in a garden, and it starts with the behavior of one man. And you remember the story of the garden way back in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, that God uh, created this kind of perfect garden where he created the sun and the moon and the stars, the grass and the ocean and the mountains. He created animals. He created all of this stuff, but still one thing was missing. And so together, God began to pull some of the dirt from the ground together, and he kind of built this kind of man-like statue. And there came a point where God breathed life into that statue, and that being became a living being called man. Later, God would name him Adam. Later, God would put that man to sleep. He'd pull a rib out, and he'd make the woman Eve. And this was a place of perfection. There was no death in this place. There was no disease, no heartache, no worry. There was food, there was abundance, there was joy. God walked through that garden every single day in the cool of the day. It was a place of joy where God was in a relationship with his people. And there was only really one rule. And that rule was that there were two trees in the middle of that garden. One was the tree of life. You eat from that tree and you can live forever with God in this beautiful garden, absolutely rent-free, right? And the other was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you eat from that tree, and death is going to enter the world. And you're going to have to leave. And it's going to be really hard and bad. And if you remember the story, you remember the choice the first man and the first woman made. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose poorly. And this is the story of the first Adam. The story starts in a garden of the Bible. It it continues on to a mountain uh, in the book of Exodus. And it was on this mountain that Moses receives the Ten Commandments that would become almost chapter headings for the rest of the law, some 613 commands. And listen to what Paul writes again about this in verse 13. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of one who was to come. We tend to rely pretty heavily on the law for our sense of right and wrong. 
We want the law. We're encouraged by the law to tell us what we can and cannot do. And part of that, as human beings, we have mastered the ability to manipulate the law in our favor. Right? Human beings are really, really good at this. But in another way, in addition to manipulating the law, we are just comforted by the law. Some of you have seen this with your kids and your grandkids. The super permissive parent and grandparent that just allows their kids to do whatever, and you're just kind of sitting there going, I don't think this is going to go well as they grow. You know? And the super permissive parents, those kids tend to have a certain amount of anxiety, of anxiety because they don't know the rules. They don't know the guardrails. We are comforted by the law. And for many of the Jewish people that Paul was addressing in Romans, they thought that the idea of sin kind of started with the law. All right, so they said, really, really, sin kind of had its genesis and its beginning once God gave the law in Exodus 20. Um, and Paul wants to make sure we understand that, hey, before the law was given, sin reigned. All right, so here's what he's saying. The law was given in Exodus 20. That's when Moses receives the Ten Commandments. From Genesis 1 to Exodus 20, there are multiple examples in those texts. All right, we've been studying that text for the last three years. There are multiple examples in, that, uh, in those texts of people sinning. How is that possible? There was no law. Well, Paul makes the argument that it's possible because we are all created in the image of God. And we have an innate sense of right and wrong, right? We really do, right? The first time your kid lied to you, it was probably very, very traumatic. It was for us, right? right? You later learn that the way you can tell that kids are lying is how? Their lips are moving, right? So, um, right? Not, not 100% of the time, but kids lie. You, you learn that as, as you're parenting, that they, they cover themselves. They're, they're just used to that. But the first time your child lied to you, it was probably traumatic enough, but it was probably also early enough that you had not established a rule in your household that we don't lie. You did after they lied, right? After they lied, you established a law that, hey, just, you know, we're going to mildly punish you because there was no law, but you just need to know moving forward. Don't lie to me, right? Don't lie to me, right? And so after you had the law, but before you didn't, but you know, when you confronted that child without a law, when you confronted that child about their lie, what did they do? They backpedaled. They tried to cover. Why? There was no rule. There was no law. Because God is a God of truth. And that little cute child standing before you, it may not seem like it all the time, but they are made in the image of God. I promise you they are. It doesn't always feel that way, but they are. That little innocent child, they are made in the image of God, and they know, without a law, they know lying's wrong. Because God placed that inside of them. So what exactly is the point of the law? Well, Paul will say in a different text that one of the points of the law is that it makes us aware of our sin, that basically we have an innate sense of right and wrong, but we can easily talk ourselves out of it, Right? We've all done this. This isn't just, we're not just using kids as an example because we all do this. I know right and wrong, but I have reasons for why I should break this innate sense that I have. So God said to take away the reasons, I'm just going to write a few things down for you. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Keep this out. Let me just jot a few things down for you so, so that you, in your manipulation of the law and working the law to your favor, it solidifies what God has placed inside of our hearts. But Paul makes a deeper point. 
He says, what the law also does, yes, it makes us aware of our sin. The law also allows us to be charged with sin. It solidified what was already in the created order, to be sure, but the law announces, allows us to, excuse me, to be pronounced guilty. All right, so we get this. You can be charged with tax evasion. The only reason you can be charged with tax evasion is why? It is against the law. You can be charged with murder. Why? It is against the law. You can be charged and prosecuted with theft. Why? It is against the law. You have an innate sense that it's wrong, an internal sense because you're made in the image of God and you're a human being, but the law allows us to be charged. So here's what the law did because it allowed us to be charged. It allowed a way for Jesus to eventually come and forgive our sin so that we didn't have to face the charges for our sin. This is why Paul will say in verse 12 that the first Adam introduces sin, and because of that, the first Adam introduced death, and he passed on these two things to all his children. Now, it's important to remember that if Adam had not chosen, one of us in this room would have, right? I'm not going to start pointing fingers, but one of us would have, right? <laughs> So-and-so, stand up, right? No, no, right? Let me say it to you this way. If everybody, if Adam had chosen righteousness and every single person after Adam had chosen righteousness, I probably would have been the one to have chosen poorly. But that being said, Adam and Eve committed the first sin. Someone's got to be first, right? Congratulations. They committed the first sin. And because of their sin, death entered the world. And in one sense, he's talking about death spiritually. Right? That sin separates us from God. The story of the garden illustrates that. Adam and Eve, at the end of the day, they had to leave the garden because of their sin. They can't stay with God. And you see this introduction into the world for the first time of judgment and condemnation and separation from God. That is the result of their sin. And now it is a reality for all who sin. We talked a lot about this in this series so far. But sin leads to condemnation judgment, and spiritual death. But he's not just talking about spiritual death. He's talking about physical death that was introduced by the actions of the first Adam, by one man. Physical death, as I described it to you earlier in the garden, was not God's idea. This was not part of God's plan. He created the garden to be a place of eternal joy and hope and peace and life with him. So about 6,000 years ago, uh, our, our, our bodies were intended to live forever. But because of the sin of the first Adam... Paul says, there's now dying and death and decay. And it explains to us, it gives us a theological framework for understanding why our world is the way it is. Why there's suffering. Why there's hardship. Why there's difficulty. It goes back to the actions of the first Adam who introduced sin into the world and thereby introduced death. So our world is now, the Bible says it this way, our world is now in a state of groaning. You ever feel that? That the world is groaning, dying, and decay. Cancer is here because the world is dying and because the world, world is in a sense of decay. Aging issues are here because we were designed to live forever and now we don't. Our bodies don't work the way they should because sin entered the world 6,000 years ago. Natural disasters are a way of the world now because the first Adam introduced sin and rebellion. And natural disasters are a physical example of the world rebelling against God. Difficult 
relationships are the result of sin being a reality in our world. Violent crime is the same way. Once the door to sin was open, a lot of other doors were open. I remember uh, reading the story of a father who passed by. His daughter was reading a book before she went to bed, and he walked by, and she was like, you're going to get it. 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 I'm telling you right now, you're going to get it. And he stopped in here and he said, what on earth are you doing? And she said, I went ahead and read the end of the story. And every time the villain does something wrong, I want him to know what's in store for him. <laughs> See, in the story of the first Adam, if that was the end of the story, it would be, if I ended the sermon right now, it'd be a real downer. But Paul says there's a second Adam. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam brings life. And his story doesn't start in a garden. His story starts in a village called Bethlehem, and it goes to a hill on a cross. And he came into this world of condemnation and decay and suffering and despair. And he comes into that world. He's born into that world as the second Adam, and he brings life. Look at how Paul describes these two Adams, because it's so important. The first Adam brought judgment. The second Adam, Jesus, brings grace. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam, Jesus, brings life. The first Adam brought condemnation. The second Adam brings forgiveness and justification. The first Adam brought decay. The second Adam brought renewal. Here's how Paul says it. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Notice how Paul describes Jesus, our second Adam, that he was our Savior who was born into this world of decay and despair and death, and he came and he infuses life. And this goes for spiritual death, obviously. He, we talked about this in this series quite a bit. He reconnects us to God. He forgives our sin so that we're not charged. Our sin is not charged to our account. He erases all of that but also about physical death. So Jesus comes into this world that was ugly because of sin, and he infuses beauty. He comes into a world of darkness, and he infuses light. He comes into a world that was despairing, and he infuses hope. This is what Jesus does. He infuses beauty and light and life. So a woman's been bleeding her entire life. The doctors have given her no hope. She's dying. And she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. A tax collector, the most hated profession of the day, people hated this guy because he was taxing his countrymen and giving the money to Rome, and Jesus comes and has lunch with him and shows him grace. A man has been a thief his entire life. He is sentenced to die. He's actually hanging on the cross, and he turns to Jesus for hope, and Jesus says, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. This is just what he does. He comes into a world marred and affected by sin, and he comes to the hopeless, and he gives them hope. He comes into the dark places, and he shines a light. He comes to those dying, and he promises them new life. Jesus is all about life. And so we join him in that work. You understand we are the life people, right? We are the life people. We are joining Jesus in the proclamation of life. We are pointing people to life in him, and we are demonstrating what life can look like in him. We are all about life. 
And not some lives, not certain lives, not just, we, we are about life for all because Jesus is about life. And we have this hope and our second Adam that he is bringing life to a broken and fallen world today and someday he's going to show us the life of the perfect world later. Paul will actually use this exact, we actually sing uh, songs that use this lyric earlier uh, today, but I want to read you this passage because Paul uses this exact kind of symbol uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if there is a natural body, so also there is a spiritual body. As it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as in the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we are born in the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Right? Adam can't, the first Adam can't do that. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, as the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself in the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. And when that has happened, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It reminds me of an illustration I heard years ago, and I shared with you years ago now, but if you'll indulge me, I'd like to share it again. It's the story of a professor that was teaching in Liberia, and they were talking through 1 Thessalonians when it says that Jesus will someday return with a shout. And this professor was teaching, and all of a sudden there's a hand that goes up in the back and says, hey, will you tell us what will Jesus be shouting when he returns? And the Bible college professor from California was talking to this West African student, and he was very tempted to leave the question unanswered, to tell the student, we must not go beyond what the scripture has revealed. But the student persisted, a good student. I, the scripture says when he returns, he will return with a shout. I would like to know what he'll be shouting when he returns. And the Bible college professor writes, My mind wandered to an encounter I had earlier that day with a refugee from a Liberian civil war. The man, a high school principal, told me how he had been apprehended by a two-man death squad. And after several hours of terror, he narrowly escaped. After hiding in the bush for two days, he was able to find his family and flee to a neighboring country. But the escape cost him dearly. Two of his children lost their lives. And then I thought about the flashbacks to the beggars that I pass every morning on the way to the office. How poverty destroys dignity. I am haunted by the eyes of the people in this country who have all lost hope. And finally it came to me. Enough, I said. He will shout enough when he returns. And a look of surprise came over the face of the student. What do you mean, enough? Enough. Enough sin. Enough evil. 
Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough, enough, enough. He will shout enough when he returns. And Jesus, I want you to understand this. The first Adam brings death and disease and sin and separation. That's the first Adam. There is a second Adam named Jesus, and he brings life today and forever. The images of a birthing room today. And uh, the, the birthing room is the room where life happens. And we adopted our kids, so I've never been in a birthing room. But I have been born. And uh, unfortunately, I don't remember that. But in the countless stories I've heard of people who have been in the birthing room, here's what they report. There's pain, there's blood, and there's self-sacrifice that is required. It is not a pleasant thing to go through from the stories I've heard to give birth. And the minute that baby is born, that to you, the most beautiful baby on the planet, any other onlooker would be like, eh, but you know, to you, it's the most beautiful baby ever born. And in minutes after all of that agony and all of that blood and all of that self-sacrifice, somebody would say to you, was it worth it? And you would say, absolutely, it was worth it. Why? Because the pain and the blood and the self-sacrifice resulted in life. Contrast that with a kidney stone. (laughs) When you have a kidney stone... There is pain, blood, and self-sacrifice that is required. Yeah, I have never heard of a person that went through passing a kidney stone and you say, hey, 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 was it worth it? And they're like, oh, absolutely. I can't wait to have my next one. No. And on the contrary, when Cheryl had a kidney stone about a year ago, she went to the doctor and said, tell me everything I need to do so this never happens again. Why? There was blood, there was pain, there was self-sacrifice. Why is the feeling and the result not the same? It didn't create life. So Jesus went to the cross. We're about to remember in just a minute here. He went to the cross, and there was blood, a lot of it. And pain. And self-sacrifice. And you may wonder sometimes, why on earth would anyone do that? To create life. And so death is all around us in a way, spiritual and physical. But you are invited into this birthing room. And I know there's not a ton of application to this, but I just want you to know, Jesus is leading you to life. Today and forever, he is leading you to life. You can trust him. You can follow him. He he engaged in a great deal of self-sacrifice to make this happen so that you and I could know life. Let's trust in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the life that he is giving us and the life that he is leading us to. Right now, as we get ready to receive communion and we remember his blood and his pain and his self-sacrifice. Right now, I pray that we would remember that he is indeed leading us to life. Life today 
and life forever. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to receive communion right now, and it is an opportunity for us to remember his blood and his pain and his self-sacrifice that resulted in life. And I want you to trust him in that. I want you to trust that he is leading you to life. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to feel anxious about it. I want you to trust that he's leading you to life. So we're going to pass the emblems out here in just a minute, and you can hold on to those and just think about the life that he's leading you to, and then I'll come up and we'll receive it all together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out so that you and I could receive, walk in, and enjoy new life. So I pray that as you leave this place, I pray that you are encouraged and you are emboldened to follow him wherever he's leading you, knowing that he is leading you to life. Will you stand and let's sing one last song?